BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Anthony Fauci this morning warning us that we could be in for a really tough time. Not the first time he said it. He said it many, many times that as the weather gets colder here in the northern hemisphere, people are going to go indoors. And the CDC had this recommendation on their website for a couple days until somebody wrote about it in the Washington Post. And then apparently came to the attention of the political people at the CDC who said, okay, get rid of that. Get rid of that right now. But what they had on their website was basically the World Health Organization's consensus of over 200 countries of the scientists in all these countries of how this virus spreads, which is that it is airborne. Now, the official position in the United States, until this was published, and now, now that it's been taken down, the official position is, well, yeah, maybe droplets. Like, if you're talking to somebody and there's some spray coming out of your mouth, maybe that's how it's transmitted. But what the CDC said for a few days was, no, it's transmitted not by droplets, but by mist particles, individual particles that are so small that they can float in the air for up to an hour. That you could be 10 feet away from somebody and if neither of you are wearing masks and you're in an enclosed area, odds are you're going to get infected. I mean, we've seen the studies from other countries. The South Korean study where the one person in the restaurant infected a bunch of other people. There was a similar study out of China. I think maybe it was out of Hong Kong. We have seen these. The Trump administration is choosing to downplay it. Donald Trump yesterday said, well, this virus uh, affects virtually nobody. Apparently, virtually nobody means 200,000 Americans and their families who are mourning them right now, ranging in age from the elderly to infants. Apparently, Trump hasn't noticed the damage his lack of coronavirus response policy has done to our economy and that millions of people have lost their jobs and because they lost their jobs, they've lost their health care. And I mean, literally tens of millions of people are on the verge of eviction, homelessness and disaster as we speak. Apparently, Donald Trump hasn't noticed how the coronavirus is affecting the Americans who are suffering, they call themselves long haulers. There are blogs popping up all over the place for them, support groups on Facebook, etc., because they're suffering long-term damage to their heart, to their lungs, to their brains, to their kidneys. I mean, pick an organ. Apparently, he hasn't noticed all the people 
who are at high risk of death and serious disability who are sheltering in place right now, including people with asthma, people with heart disease, people with diabetes, 40% of the American population that is diagnosably obese, and people over 50. I suspect that if you add all those people up, they're a solid majority of Americans who are at high risk for dying or getting very, very sick if they get this disease. Apparently, he hasn't noticed that countries that took this virus seriously have only a few dozen or in some cases a few hundred deaths. While we just close, we're closing in today on 200,000 dead Americans. And, you know, by Christmas, it'll be a quarter million dead. Apparently, he hasn't noticed that his herd immunity strategy didn't work well in countries like Brazil. And that if he continues with this herd immunity strategy, and that's openly and nakedly what they're doing, that means six million dead Americans. That's what he wants to hand off to the next president. Or if he continues to be president when he turns himself into dictator, that'll be the story that will not be allowed in the news. Just like in some of the other right-wing countries. Apparently he hasn't noticed that neither Taiwan nor Japan, great piece about Japan two days ago in the Wall Street Journal, They never shut down their economies. The Taiwan economy is scheduled to grow at 1.7% this year. They're back to normal. What did these two countries do that never shut down? Shutting down is like the sledgehammer. It's the blunt force instrument. What they did is they mandated masks. Everybody in the country must wear a mask all the time. Anytime you could be exposing yourself to other people. And widespread testing and contact tracing. The one thing he did notice, though, the one thing, you know, Donald Trump clearly noticed, as did Jared Kushner, as did Mike Pence, as did the people on the task force, when they decided to stop the post office from mailing five free masks to every American back in March, when they decided to stop moving the federal train, as it were, toward using the Defense Production Act, to require the production of masks and personal protective equipment for our hospitals, but specifically masks for every American. We're back now to a shortage of N95 masks here in the United States. I mean, this is how insane it is. But apparently what they noticed back when they made those decisions was that this virus was disproportionately killing elderly Social Security voters. Keep in mind, Trump has promised to destroy Social Security within three years and African-Americans and Hispanic people and Native Americans, black and brown people. Apparently he's noticed that. And to that end, it seems that he's trying to spread this virus as far and wide as possible. Yes, let's infect as many Americans as possible. It doesn't kill as many white people, you know. We should call this what history will call it when history looks back on this moment in the United States. Genocide. That is the policy, that is the practice that the Trump administration is pursuing. An intentional, willful extermination of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Americans, if we do the herd mentality, as Trump calls it, the herd immunity strategy, six million Americans, the willful, intentional death of millions of Americans who are being apparently, according to this administration, sorted by race and age. You know, it just, it's not a big deal, Trump says in his rally yesterday. 
And Anthony Fauci this morning says, I'm in my 70s. It's a big deal to me. I mean, Trump was essentially saying, eh, old people to hell with them. Eh, you know, overweight people to hell with them. Eh, people who have diabetes and heart disease, let them die. We got to, you know, Darwin, it's a good thing. You know, you got to strengthen the herd by weeding out the weak. African-Americans, Hispanics, who are more likely to be on the front lines and face these, face the probability of infection, who are less likely to have white collar jobs where they can work from home and, and be remote, who are more likely to live in food deserts where what they're eating is actually contributing to things like diabetes, heart disease, and obesity. Yeah, to hell with them. This is Trump's quasi-official strategy. Or do you think that by calling this genocide that I've gone over the top? Just a few other things on the fascism watch, as it were. Bill Barr, the Justice Department, said basically that New York City, Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington are, quote, anarchist jurisdictions. And they have directed the federal government to look at ways to cut funding to these cities. Now, New York City, for example, receives about $7 billion a year in federal funds. They send a hell of a lot more than that to the federal government in the form of taxes. But what they get back, Bill Barr and Donald Trump want to start cutting. Bill Barr said, quote, We cannot allow federal tax dollars to be wasted when the safety of the citizenry hangs in the balance. Really. So if our cities, you know, Ted Wheeler, the mayor here in Portland, said, We're not going to use tear gas. No tear gas. Here in Portland. And so, you know, if you're not going to use police state tactics, according to Bill Barr, you're not going to get federal money. It goes on, you know, it gets even worse. In a conference call with U.S. attorneys across the country last week, Bill Barr warned, encourage prosecutors to seek a number of federal charges, including the uh, rarely used sedition law, rarely used as kind of an overstatement or an understatement, rather, I believe the last time the sedition law was used was during the John Adams presidency. I might be wrong, but this is amazing. And clearly, the purpose of this is not to put people in jail just for sedition. It's to scare people from protesting. If you're charged with a federal crime, even if you don't go to jail, it's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars to hire lawyers. It's going to turn your life upside down for years or up two years, and it can completely screw up your chances of ever getting certain types of jobs. I mean, there's all kinds of punishments, essentially, that go with this, even if you don't end up in jail or paying fines. This is what Bill Barr said in an NBC News interview. He said, they are organized. They have websites. Anyone who spent a moment at these things and heard their chants and what they're calling for can see right away that they are, they say they are, revolutionaries. This is a revolution. He's not talking about the right-wing groups who are openly calling for civil war. He's talking about left-wing groups who are asking the police stop killing 
black people and that we have a nation of rights under the law. Meanwhile, in Dallas, the Dallas Independent School District is apologizing now because a teacher passed out an assignment to that teacher's students asking them to write about a modern hero of our age. A modern age hero. The list of potential people that you could choose from included Mahatma Gandhi, Cesar Chavez, Malcolm X, George Floyd, and Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old who murdered two people and blew the arm off a third in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the right-wing vigilante. Yes, a hero for our time. And Donald Trump is out here saying that when Ali Velshi, who was at a totally peaceful demonstration, there was no violence, there was no property destruction, people walking down the street, marching and protesting, an activity that is protected by the First Amendment, so protected by the First Amendment, that back in the 1960s, the Supreme Court said that even if it was a group of Nazis with swastikas, marching through a uh, neighborhood in Chicago that was largely occupied, keep in mind this was the 50s and 60s, that was largely occupied by survivors of the Holocaust in Germany, Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. Even then, that is protected speech. That's what the Supreme Court said. But now, Donald Trump is saying, hey, a journalist who gets shot by a rubber-coated or a plastic-coated steel bullet by police during a 100% peaceful demonstration. He says, it's the most beautiful thing. It's called law and order. He's making fun of Ali Velshi. He's going, oh, he got hit in the knee. He goes, oh, my knee, oh, my knee. This is how fascists talk. This is how Mussolini used to talk. And then he goes off on jeans. This was in Minnesota over the weekend. Donald Trump, Minnesota's 84% white. And the immigrants in the Minneapolis area, by and large from Somalia, Omar Ilhan is one of them, and they are black. So Trump goes to Minnesota and he says, and I quote, you have good genes, you know that, right? You have good genes. A lot of it is about the genes, isn't it? Don't you believe? The racehorse theory? You think you're so different? You have good genes in Minnesota. And then he goes on talking about the black refugees in Minnesota. He says, are you having a good time with your refugees? And then he says, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar. Now, Omar, as I recall, is the only one of the three who wears a hijab, you know, the head covering as part of her clothing. But Trump says, maybe they should be prosecuted for buying dresses. We'll prosecute them. Yeah, why not? And the crowd goes nuts. And then he praised Robert E. Lee. Yeah, the guy who led the uh, insurrection against the United States. Meanwhile, in Virginia, maggot supporters are blocking a polling place entrance. We've fallen through the rabbit hole. You will recall... When this story broke a few weeks ago, Law and Crime actually was the first place that I knew of that published it. This was on uh, September 14th, Jerry Lamba writing the headline, Like an Experimental Concentration Camp, Whistleblower Complaint Alleges Mass Hysterectomies at ICE Detention Center. A nurse who worked there, her name was Dawn Wooten, this is the center at the Irwin County Detention Center in Georgia, operated by LaSalle Corrections, a private prison company. 
She says that multiple women have come forward. This is from her complaint. A detained immigrant told Project South that she talked to five different women detained at ICDC between October and December of last year who had a hysterectomy done. Multiple women have come forward to talk about this. It's one particular guy. He represents himself as a gynecologist. It turns out he's not even board certified as a gynecologist. Wooten said everyone he sees has a hysterectomy, just about everyone. Everybody's uterus cannot be that bad. The women in the place call him the uterus collector. I spoke out and said, you know, why would they be doing this? The only two reasons that come to my mind immediately are number one, it's eugenics. This is perpetuation of Stephen Miller's let's turn America white again. Let's, you know, make America white again. They use the word great, but we all know what they mean. That that's what it is. They're trying to sterilize brown women, Hispanic women. Or that they're trying to cover up things like pregnancies that result from rape by guards. And at the time that I raised that, I said, you know, I'm reluctant to even say this out loud because it just sounds so awful. But over the weekend, 25 people were protesting outside the Douglas County Jail on Saturday in response to these allegations. And then ProPublica publishes this. This came out, I believe, today by Lomi Creel. Guards at an immigration detention center sexually assaulted and harassed inmates in a pattern and practice of abuse. Now, this was in the El Paso Center, but, you know, hey, they're all run by the same people, basically. These studies, the, the allegations detailed the filing first obtained by ProPublica and the Texas Tribune say that the guards systematically assaulted people often in areas of the detention center not visible to security cameras. The guards told victims that no one would believe them because footage did not exist and the harassment involved officers as high-ranking as a lieutenant. Since the complaint was filed Wednesday, two more women have come forward with abuse allegations. At least one other woman was deported after a guard assaulted her. The El Paso County District Attorney's Office has forwarded potentially criminal allegations to the DHS Inspector General. All right, Chad Wolf's definitely going to do something about this, isn't he? This particular place, it's run by Global Precision Systems, which is a subsidiary of Bering Straits Native Corporation, which contracts with ICE to run the El Paso facility. ICE imprisons about 50,000 immigrants across the United States. Uh, you and I pay $2.7 billion a year, mostly to private for-profit contractors who are big donors to the Republican Party for this. Out of that 50,000 immigrants who are detained, between 2010 and 2016, there were 14,700 complaints alleging physical and sexual abuse. Formal complaints. People who are actually willing to put up with the possibility of being, you know, put in solitary or being raped or whatever as retribution. ProPublica notes, only a small fraction were ever inspected by the office of the inspector general. In a May court filing in Houston, a Mexican woman said in an ICE facility, she and two female detainees were moved to an isolation cell. Around midnight, three men wearing facial coverings entered the cell. They raped and beat them. The immigrants were then bused to Mexico hours later, where the woman eventually discovered that she was pregnant from that assault. The detention center, which is run by Core Civic, called the allegations slanderous and denied them, but there is a civil lawsuit going on. A Salvatoran woman, this is again, I'm reading this, you can find this at ProPublica.org. 
A Salvatoran woman was repeatedly harassed. A guard said that if she would fool around with him, he'd give her clean uniforms and soap. He told her he'd pay her a lot of money to meet him for sex in a spot not visible to the cameras. Two other officers also repeatedly targeted her, according to the complaint. One sent her messages through other women, even after she was released. She said in a telephone interview that guards encourage women to sign up for anti-anxiety medication and antidepressants because the guards oversee the dispensing of medication at night and have access to an enclosed off-camera area. I thought it was too, frankly, you know, Louise and I debated even bringing this up on the radio because it's like, that's just like so over the top that they're performing hysterectomies so that they can rape these women without worrying about getting them pregnant. You know, I have no evidence of this, just two plus two, but my God. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The place where despair is not an option. I was sharing with you how the Justice Department has now named Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, and New York City as, quote, anarchist jurisdictions. The Trump administration has directed various federal agencies to figure out how they can cut federal funding to these cities because we have protests against the president going on in these cities. Bill Barr, meanwhile, has, in a conference call with U.S. attorneys last week, said that protesters protesting the death of black men at the hands of white police officers should be charged with sedition. I mean, this is how bizarre it's gotten. And now we find that the Department of Homeland Security has just fallen through Alice's rabbit hole. This is just amazing. A a brilliant piece in The Nation magazine by uh, the nation's D.C. correspondent, Ken Klippenstein. TheNation.com is the website. Ken's uh, Twitter handle is Ken Klippenstein, K-L-I-P-P-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. The title of the piece is White Supremacists Are a Threat to Elections, Say DHS. Ken, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us. So tell us about what is going on. From reading your piece, it seems like either there's an internal battle at DHS or there's uh, a few people who are just throwing their hands up. Give us the story. Give us the backstory and then the story. Yeah, that's an important point you make. Yeah, there is a conflict at DHS, which is absolutely true. We tend to think of these agencies as being monolithic. But, you know, while there are political appointees the president chooses, there are also rank and file career folks that have been there for, in many cases, over a decade. And they tend to have different views, different interests than politicals that are put in place. And so this document, this intelligence report, stressing the importance of focusing on white supremacists and the threats that they pose, the physical threats that they pose to election security, election season. I think that this shows that conflict that's happening internally. I have a lot of sources in DHS. It has long been a frustration of theirs trying to get resources to go after these far-right white supremacist groups, not just white supremacists, but also the anti-government militia groups who are killing more and more people in recent years. It didn't start now, but it certainly accelerated. There was one case of a far-right militia member who killed multiple federal law enforcement officers in California. And really, after that happened, that's when you start to see a whole lot more movement from these agencies, internally anyways. And so what's interesting about this document that I had leaked to me from a source um, uh, in the law enforcement community um, was that it showed 
not just that they identified white supremacists as the chief threat to physical security as opposed to, say, cybersecurity, which is an entirely different matter. It also went into pretty detailed discussion of these different groups and their motives. And chief among their motives, they cited, was perceived grievances about immigration, which, I mean, (laughs) I don't know if you've paid much attention to the president, but that is certainly consistent with this kind of rhetoric that we've seen coming out of this administration. So it was very surprising to me to see this come out of an agency that we know has had problems tracking the threat of white supremacists in the past. So we're seeing where scientists are quitting over at uh, the EPA because they're being forced to allow more pollution and and more cancers and more deaths in America. Uh, We're seeing over at the Interior Department people resigning because the Interior Department, which manages our federal lands, is now selling off our federal lands to mining operations and whatnot for pennies on the dollar. Federal agency after federal agency, you've got people resigning in protest at the Department of Justice over what Bill Barr is doing, you know, his swing toward fascism. Now this crisis at DHS, just unambiguously, I think most Americans remembering 9-11 think that Muslim terrorists represent the greatest threat to America. Where are radicalized Muslim terrorists on the hierarchy of threats compared to white guys with AR-15s walking around in our cities? There was a group called the Center for Strategic Intelligence Studies that put out an assessment looking back, I think it was 25 years, at these uh, various extremist groups, both far right and far left. And what they found was that in the case of Antifa or, you know, self-described anarchists, whatever you may think of them, and, you know, it is factually true that there has been property destruction, you know, broken windows, that kind of thing. They couldn't find a single case of a person that they had killed. And when you compare that with the far right groups, like the white supremacists and the anti-government groups, they found a far higher number. I think it was in the hundreds or maybe low thousands. So to, you know, draw any sort of equivalence between what law enforcement says is property destruction, that kind of thing, and the kind of violence that you see on the far right, it just seems silly, and and folks inside will tell you that too. And these are not, you know, left-wing progressives, the kind of folks that comprise the intelligence and law enforcement agencies. Uh, That's not to say that they're far-right Trump people necessarily, although those are obviously there. They tend to be more towards the center. Certainly, they don't tend towards the far left by any means. And they themselves are saying, you know, like, uh, they don't like Antifa, they don't like property destruction, that kind of thing, but they have a sense that we need to prioritize what's going on here. And the real, you know, um, not just violence, but politically motivated violence and the sort of violence that is getting increasingly organized in terms of, I know that they have intelligence that um, far-right groups are starting to travel to places like Ukraine to get training from paramilitary, very scary paramilitary, essentially neo-Nazi groups there. And when you see that degree of organization and sort of coordination and collusion, that's a much different sort of thing than if a kid throws a brick through a window or something. So the two are just not the same. Yeah, and I think the last time we had violent leftists in the United States was the Weather Underground, and they've been long gone for 50 years. What is the specific threat that these white supremacists in the United States represent? So the intelligence report mentions, they said that they had found internal chats in which they were discussing trying to spread COVID among minority groups. You know, they have this ideology that whites are being replaced in the country and that they're trying to install an illegitimate government from their their point of view. And so their view is to try to push out the non-whites. And the way that you go about doing that, they have a few different 
strategies. I know other intelligence reports, this one was quite short. It was maybe two pages long. It doesn't go into detail. But I've seen other intelligence reports from, for example, the FBI, which I've had leaked to me in the past, that show that they had planned trying to dress up and look like far-left protesters and then engaging in property destruction or even violence. Well, we saw that in Minneapolis. Exactly. You know, the, the yeah. first guy who was smashing windows in that car dealership that led to all the window smashing and looting turns out was a right winger. I didn't know that. I'm not familiar with that case. But this is a strategy that they employ to try to turn public opinion against the protesters. And they've been very, to give you an example, I mentioned a far-right militia guy that killed some federal law enforcement. This is actually a very interesting case. Uh, it took place in California this summer. He was a special forces guy under the Air Force. He had elite training. And he actually got a machine gun that he put a silencer on and drove around in a minivan when he killed these officers. His goal in using the silencer, he did it near a protest so that he hoped that the police would think it was the protesters that did that. So there's a lot of thought going on. Well, and in fact, there were right-wingers at the time, and to this day, who are accusing left-wingers of those murders. Ken Klippetine, you're doing brilliant, brilliant reporting over at The Nation magazine. Thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you again. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Tom. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
an old friend and colleague of mine from uh, Air America days and, and other events over the years, Laura Flanders, now has a new show on PBS stations nationwide. She's the host of Grit TV, contributor to Nation Magazine, the author of six books, including Blue Grit. True Democrats Take Back Politics and the Politicians. LauraFlanders.org is her website and her Twitter handle is The LF Show or Grit Laura. Laura, welcome back to the program. It's been a long time since we've hey, talked. Congratulations Tom, on yeah, your new show. It's been too long. I'm so happy to hear you, to be with you. And yeah, isn't it exciting? We finally made it on the public television. I think that's spectacular. I think it's absolutely spectacular. I'm curious your thoughts on this particular political moment and how you think Democrats should be playing this out. We heard Tim Kaine this morning on MSNBC saying, basically, I'm just going to try to appeal to Republicans' better side. I'm not sure they have a better side. Uh, well, you, you know, know what? I like... think you know what I think about that, Tom. You know, I mean, let's face it. You started the morning. I listened to you talking a little bit about, you know, patriarchy and capitalism and the intersection of the two in relation to Harriet Tubman. And of course, I'm thinking about that in relation to Ruth Bader Ginsburg this morning. And the day yeah. is one of those days where you either really do look at that glass half full or you really do look at the half empty. I think the Democratic campaign is barely. Well, I hate to say this. I won't say what I was going to say, but what I was going to say was something along the lines of doesn't deserve our attention. What does deserve our attention is all of the other organizing that people are doing all across the country. And Friday was one of those days where you saw early voting begin in several states and people lining up for hours to vote. You saw in Virginia, apparently, a mob reminiscent of the Stop the Vote Count mob in Florida in 2000, which you and I remember well, trying to intimidate voters, it seemed like. I don't know what their intentions were, but it certainly looked like it to me from the TV. And yet people are standing there, they're in their masks, they're showing up. And that's been the story of this whole summer, hasn't it? I mean, this whole year. In a period of social distancing, people have come together, for the most part, looking after each other as they demanded change. And whether the Democratic Party is up to this moment, meaning mobilizing people to do that or not, I think what we've seen people learn over the many years that you and I have been doing this work is nobody's waiting for the Democratic Party to say so. They are out there organized and doing their work. I, I just picked up a yard sign from someone around here who got so tired of not having any yard signs in this rural and small town place that I'm living. They just went out and made his own, you know, and now he's taking mm-hmm. a contribution for people that want it. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they say, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And it's just not true. People are constantly setting out to be what they cannot see. Harriet Tubman did it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did it. And I think people are doing it. They're setting out to make this a democratic election against all the odds. And it's exciting as well as kind of bracing. I agree. I read a piece a while back about community policing that I thought you had written. Am I misremembering that? Did you do a deep dive into community policing? We did a little bit. I mean, we did a TV show on the subject, and we've linked a bunch of good articles. The show that we did is airing right now. Just so people can be clear, we premiere every Sunday at 11.30 on PBS World, which goes out to about 200 stations around the country. And then we're nationally syndicated on public television stations throughout the week. You can find out what your local station is at our website. Thanks for mentioning it, lauraflanders.org. And you can also watch 
the show anytime you want and any of the shows we've done at our YouTube channel, which is also the Laura Flanders show. But the show that's airing this week that premiered yesterday is about something called the Newark Community Street Team that came together at the initiative of the mayor, Roz Baraka, who brought in a peacekeeper from the gang wars of L.A. to develop a community organization led by people who've been, quote unquote, on the wrong side of the law, which is to say the police, people who've spent lots of time inside, many of them, are now working together to determine how a good portion of the public safety budget of that south ward of New Jersey is spent. And our show was about how fascinating it is that you find people in the police department and the public safety officer and people in the community who have no reason to be feeling warmly about cops figuring out how to work together. Well, I say in an understatement yeah. of the year, I think, that it's not easy for the police and the police to collaborate but they're doing it. And in this year, we saw less violence against people or property in Newark, even during the mobilizations and the reaction to the police killings of this year. Less violence in Newark than almost any other major city, especially given the history that Newark has in people's minds. So it's an inspiring story. I encourage people to check it out. I've told this story on this program before that back in, I think it was 96 was the year the Olympics came to Atlanta. Louise and I were living in Atlanta and I was writing a series of novels about a private detective and a friend of mine was an old police chief, a small town Georgia police chief. And there was not enough security for the Olympics. And so the Georgia Police Academy had opened up the academy for people who wanted to become private detectives, which was the legal rubric that they could use at that time so that they could legally provide security for the Olympics. And I ran through that course and it was like six or eight weeks and we lived down there in, in this little town in Georgia at the police academy. And my sense of it, and, and I was interacting with all these guys who were just running through the police academy, most of them to become state police, although a lot of small town police forces use it. My sense of it was that about a third of the people that I met there were just decent average people looking for a job that had a pension where they could retire after 25 years. About a third of them were people who were really Dudley Do-Rights. They really believed in what they were doing. They wanted, they wanted to make a better world. And about a third of them were complete fascist asses. In fact, one of them beat me up pretty badly when we were practicing, in quotes, hand-to-hand -hand combat. I'm hopeful that these kinds of policies, like programs like you're talking about, can kind of filter out that last third and raise up those first two-thirds. What's your sense of that? We need law, right? So you need to have some barriers, some boundaries within which our police forces, our public safety operators operate. There's no question. We need litigation that says certain kind of behavior is unacceptable in our police force. You need public engagement, I think, when it comes to what the job of the so-called public safety officers is. I mean, on our show, Akilah Shirils, who, who heads up this team, he says, you know, we define safety as having enough food to eat, a place to live, and a way to make a living at a livable standard for you and your family. So that is already not just about policing. That's already about investing in communities, supporting local businesses, supporting small business in an era of Amazon. I heard you talking about Amazon. So we're already going outside the police department, and I think that's the call of many of the movement for Black Lives activists, Black Lives Matter. When they talk about defund the police, sure, I think many of them are saying, what would we do if we didn't just call 911? if we didn't take a punitive approach to everything wrong in society. And I think they're getting at that. 
with that slogan. But they're actually saying, but they're also saying concretely, let's look at these budgets. Where are the funds actually going to and coming from? And so that's two things. So we need laws. We need budgets that apportion responsibility appropriately and resources appropriately. Don't leave it all in the hands of the cops. And then absolutely what you're talking about, we need leadership that hones out the people that shouldn't be in that job. The Laura Flanders Show on PBS stations nationwide. You can see it all at lauraflanders.org. Laura, good luck. Keep in yeah, touch. Thanks a lot, Tom. Absolutely. See you again okay. soon. Laura Flanders, the great Laura Flanders. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Roger in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Roger, you're on the air. Uh, Nelson Mandela said this, and you're part of it. Our world is not divided by race, color, gender, or religion. Our world is divided into wise people, and you're one of the wise people, and fools. And fools divide themselves by race, color, gender, or religion. That's written by Nelson Mandela. I'm an independent. Huh. I appreciate your brilliance. Well, thank even you. Even though I'm an independent. Thank you very kindly. And to whatever extent I may be that, I, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I learned these things from my father and a lot of other mentors. Roger, thank you so much. Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's on your mind today? Talking about that man, that house burned down. He still probably wouldn't understand. I probably wouldn't accept the well, fact that I don't know. global warming and what have you, and what we do to this planet <laughs> affects us and affects the. the I am hoping it'll be a big wake-up call for him. I'm concerned about this so-called peaceful transfer of power, and then I'm not thinking about the Trump thing. I'm talking about later on, because they have this fear of losing white power. That whole dynamic of holding on to white power regardless of anything becomes more of the agenda. And when they feel, if, if they feel that they're losing it, what is going to be the backlash? Because we already got some of the backlash from Trump election, from this whole racial uprising, the fact that we're ignoring the fact that this pandemic is practically ravaging our country. And instead of reacting to that, we say, well, listen, we have more pressing issues because we have to maintain white power. <laughs> you know, it, that's more important than anything else than trying to keep this country moving in the direction that's helpful to everybody, as opposed to yeah. just helpful to one group of people. I'm really concerned about that because we already saw the backlash of yeah. the fear of becoming the minority, you know, the white pe- white power becoming right. a minority. I opened my book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, with this story. Because you're saying, you know, the whole white power thing essentially started with Trump. It didn't. It started, no. in my opinion, the modern day version of it, it started with the election of Obama. And I tell the story in that book about how Christmas 2008, Obama had been elected a month earlier, and he was still three weeks out from becoming inaugurated as president. I was in Michigan for Christmas holidays. Two of my brothers and a couple of our kids and I went down to Mason, Michigan, to one of the biggest gun ranges in Michigan, to rent guns and competitively shoot. It's something, one of my brothers, you know, is a competitive shooter. He's also a vegetarian, but, you know, he did target practice, right? <laughs> and when I went in there, the, gu- the shelves were almost empty of ammunition, and I tried to buy two boxes of 40 caliber ammunition for the gun that I had rented, and the guy said, no, you can only have one box. And I said, why is that? 
And he said, because that N-word in the white, uh, who, who just got elected president is going to take away all our guns. And he starts going off on this rant about that N-word in the White House. And, I mean, you know, this is just a, a white guy in middle America, right? Probably 30 years old. And I'm like, I don't think so. And he pulls out his phone and shows me an email from, from I don't know, the NRA or somebody going, Obama has a secret plan to steal all our weapons. And, you know, Obama is going to foment a race war. This has been going on for a while. I mean, you know, obviously it's been going on for 400 years. But, I mean, right in our face, it's been going on for a while. And got to have a reckoning with this, Tyrone. We've got to have a reckoning with it. People of goodwill have to show up. Tyrone, I'm sorry I don't have any easy answer, but I can certainly diagnose the problem. Thanks for the call. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. You are listening to the program where despair is not an option. Join us. Get out there. Get active. Curtis in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Curtis, what's on your mind today? Oh, repulsive kids. That's what I call them. The fact that there's no... No shame with these people. They don't mind cheating. In fact, we wouldn't be in this shape if there had been any Republicans that had a spine, a backbone, that weren't enablers. Trump can't do anything without the enablers. He's a blowhard, yeah, but he needs the enablers, the people like Lindsey Graham. I mean, I don't know what to say about him. While John McCain is alive and voting against Trump, Lindsey Graham says, well, he should be able to vote who he wants to. But I wonder how many times he's called Cindy McCain and apologized for being silent while Trump bashes her husband. Uh, yeah, I guarantee uh, you the number is zero, hero. Curtis. <laughs> but zero. what I am... Uh, what I am most concerned about is the racism in the country that the enablers ignore. Michael Cohen said that the one reason Trump is so against Barack Obama is because he's black. Yep. No other reason. He's black. There has to be that third of the electorate that you talk about. A third of the electorate agree with them. They want to erase every mention of Barack Obama from history. Like they want to erase everything pertaining to slavery from history. It never happened in the United States. Yeah, and Trump just announced a campaign to do that, his 1776 project, which is to take on the New York Times 1619 project. And, uh, you know, let's teach Americans that, you know, slaveholders were good, nice, sweet people. And we're slaves would just people. love to sing, sing songs and pick cotton. Right, right. Slavery was full employment for black people. I've even That's actually people. in the Texas school books right now, Curtis. If not right now, it was a couple of years ago because we did a whole show on it on this program. And we had the governor of Virginia a while back want to institute a curriculum in the schools where slavery was put on the back burner, almost like it didn't happen. And 
There are people who agree with that, Tom. There are people who wish that we quit talking about race because we live in the U.S. If you don't like it, go someplace else. Well, no, that's not how it works. Not how it's supposed to work, anyway. Mm -hmm. Protesters are seditionists, except if they're yelling, Jews will not replace us, or blood and soil, or carrying automatic rifles to anti-mask rallies. Those people are okay. And the Supreme Court has become the most political organization in government. She's no longer, I think you even mentioned this, no longer is the most qualified or the most... Yeah, uh, no, it's all about ideology. Curtis, I'm sorry to cut you off, but we're hitting a break. Curtis, thank you for your call. You're absolutely spot on. Nothing you said can I disagree with. COVID deaths rise 17% in the past week. Remember back around Labor Day? On this program, I was saying, well, we'll, we'll find out if Labor Day, every, every holiday that we've had, the 4th of July, Memorial Day, every holiday we've had has been followed two to three weeks later by a spike in COVID cases. Just like what it seems to have constituted just short of 20% of all the new cases in America that came as a result of that motorcycle rally in Sturgis in the Dakota Territory. And now we are apparently seeing the results of people you know, partying hard for Labor Day. The Labor Day holiday, uh, we saw a 17%, this is for the week ending September 20th, 17% increase to about 287,000 Americans. Deaths rose 5.5% to 5,400 people after falling for the previous four weeks, according to Reuters. The test percentage, you know, if you're above 5%, it means you're not testing enough and the virus is running crazy through your state. 26 of 50 states are above 5%. The highest, Idaho, Wisconsin, Iowa, and South Dakota at over 16%, all four of those states. So we've got a serious problem here as Donald Trump is trying to impose a herd mentality, herd immunity strategy on America, killing as many as 6 million Americans in the process just so that he doesn't have to do the hard work of governing. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. It's breathtaking. It's really breathtaking. Debbie in uh, Ronan, Montana. Hey, Debbie, what's on your mind today? I think it's time that we start using the words COVID and genocide together. I'm a member of the Pembina Band of Turtle Mountain Chippewa. I also have a little shell blood running through my veins. I consider myself a survivor, a descendant of genocide, because there's been so many attempts at genocide towards my people. I mean, we're the only people who have to prove who we are before we are who we are. The alcohol, the blankets. I mean, the fact that I have native blood running through my veins is kind of surprising some days. And when I heard you say today that, you know, it's a form of genocide, I just thought, yes, because it needs to be said out loud. When it's kept quiet like that, it becomes more evil. It's just... It's so sad. I got pretty choked up when I heard it right now in Montana um, on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. I just talked to my Indian sister there, and her sister just passed away of it, and she said it's just running rampant on the Fort Belknap Reservation. It's just, you know, taking its toll all over, all over and all the reservations, and 
the Navajo reservation took a hard hit too, and I just don't think that people see that as much because a lot of times when people talk about people of color or minorities, you'll you'll hear them say African Americans and you'll hear them say Asians. They usually don't say Native Americans. And you do. I've mm. noticed that you do. But it just doesn't happen a lot. And I don't know if maybe sometimes that's a good thing, you know, that we're not included in some of the ruckus that's out there, I guess I'd say, for lack of a better word. But I really think that we need to talk more about genocide and and how I really do think that, that this is what's going on. You know, ethnic cleansing might be a, another good word for it, but genocide is real, and it's been real for 200 years in my family. I mean, I've done my genealogy, and I... <laughs> the lives of the people that came before me and the things that they survived oh my gosh and we're going to survive this too you know what there's always going to be Indian people and when I look at the current administration I can't even say the name you know the hate for Native American people is is real and I just really want people to in fact they ought to start saying the COVID genocide I mean, that just those two words belong together in my mind. I need to take a breath here because I'm pretty, I, it's pretty emotional for me. You know, I just think of all of the things that they tried to do. And, you know, even as far as when they talk about people that have mass murders and stuff, the worst one in U.S. history, well, no, it's not because the most, the worst mass murders in U.S. history were. Native American people that they went out and just massacred people just nonstop. So, by, yeah, by the millions, I mean, there's, and, you know, I, I could stay on my soapbox here for a long time, Tom, but, you know, it's, I just really think that COVID genocide is real. And my friends and I have been saying it, we've been saying, Hey, you know what? This is just another, just another smallpox blanket. And we need to know that and we need to protect ourselves. It seems to me that the most underreported story of this entire pandemic here in the United States is that up until early to mid-March, the Trump administration started taking this thing seriously as it was obvious it was spreading across the United States. They were being driven by science. They were being advised by Anthony Fauci. Uh, Jared Kushner and his buddies had a plan to to get PPE and masks to everybody. And and we were going to have widespread testing and contact tracing. And the post office was going to send five free masks to every single American. And all this stuff was in place. And then April 7th, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, right across the board, all the media published this blockbuster study that had just come out a couple of days before that that showed that Native Americans, African Americans, Hispanics, and elderly people were the overwhelming majority of deaths. Um, not necessarily infections, but deaths. And that white people, particularly white people who were under 50 and in reasonably good health, 
were unlikely to die as a result of this disease. It was still possible, but unlikely. And at that point, when it became obvious that this disease was aggressively killing off people of color, including Native Americans and the elderly, people who tend to vote Social Security, at that point, the entire Trump administration just did a U-turn and said, okay, that's it. We're not going to mail masks to people. We're not going to talk about masks. We're going to change the... And that's when Donald Trump started talking about it being a Democratic hoax and all this other stuff. And in my mind, that was the final solution moment. That was when they decided, okay, here's a road we can go down that's actually going... I mean, apparently, uh, Trump and Kushner and these guys were actually talking about this is only happening in blue states, let's just let them die. Because back then it was New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and and Washington State. And so just let them die. And that's the kind of mentality, obviously, with with your people, Debbie, with Native Americans, it was more than just let them die, it's make them die. The line between the two seems fairly wavy, fairly indistinct to me. I totally agree with you. I just really think that if people would start recognizing that it is you know, it's COVID is genocide. And they also, from what I understand, withheld a lot of stuff from the tribal people, the administration, so that they wouldn't get the supplies they needed. I mean, right now, right. there's not PPE. enough masks here. So I yep. appreciate Absolutely. I appreciate it. Miigwetz says thank you in my language. Well, thank you, Debbie. Miigwetz back at you. Thank you very much. It's great to hear from you. Harriet in New York City. Hey, Harriet, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Um, hello, Tom. Um, thank you for calling it out for what it is. I also see it as genocide or ethnic cleansing. Um, it's not an exaggeration. As a black woman, I feel it closing in on me. White supremacy is engulfing this country. Um, what, what I, my question is, how do we get white people to specifically focus on this issue, given that in Nazi Germany, so many ordinary, God-fearing good people turned a blind eye, accepted genocide, um, became uh, uh, accepted it, even though they knew it was morally indefensible. Um, um, are there enough white people in this country who are empathetic enough to um, to ally against um, this present extension of Nazism? How do we get white people to concentrate on it as the issue of the day? I think that there probably are. <laughs> I think that the, the, the white racist Trump base and that whole group is smaller than it was. I think year by year it's shrinking. Although in tough economic times, things like otherisms tend to rise to the top, particularly when a majority, uh, an ethnic majority or whatever you want to call it, you know, the German majority, the, the, the white American majority, starts feeling um, under economic threat. And then somebody comes along, whether it's Hitler pointing at the Jews or Trump pointing at, at Hispanics and says, oh, it's them or at black people. Oh, it's them. And I think in some ways, America was softened up for this, Harriet. And this is the thing that, you know, those of us who were yelling back in 2003 and 2004, and I was doing it loudly on this program. In fact, I wrote a book about it called We the People, about George W. Bush and Dick Cheney creating illegal torture camps all around the world and creating an illegal prison in Guantanamo and saying this is causing Americans to say, oh, yeah, okay, so we illegally imprison people without, without due process. We can ignore the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th Amendments to the Constitution, even though it doesn't even say citizens, it says persons. 
So that softened us up. And now we've got Trump, who has put 50,000 Hispanic people in jails, several thousand, thousands and thousands of children. They're starting to die of COVID and other things. You know, Americans are like, eh, you know, it's just, it's just they're immigrants. They're, they're the other, right? The more that these right-wingers can successfully otherize people, the easier it becomes for them to engage in genocidal behavior and have the rest of the white population just shrug their shoulders like the good Germans did. And that's what concerns me, Harriet. I think that we need people. Yeah. Harriet, your, 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 your uh, voice, for some reason, it just vanished when the music started. I'm sorry, but we're hitting the break. But Harriet, I don't have a magic bullet to offer other than waking people up and speaking out, which is why I continue to do this show every day, because I think, and I, with a largely white audience, people need to wake the hell up. Harriet, thank you. Charles in Conway, South Carolina. Hey, Charles, what's up? I'm a disabled American veteran, Vietnam veteran, with a traumatic head injury, and I've been called a loser by this clown we call president. All right. I also was raised Catholic, no longer Catholic. Vietnam took me away from that. And I worked at the post office, so I, the few things you were speaking about the last two weeks, I've been involved with. I'm probably the most liberal person you have ever met in your life. And my whole family has been that until my children. I have two children that are mm-hmm. claimed to be Republicans. And I just don't understand that. Charles, thank you for the call and thanks for sharing your story with us. There are so many Americans who are looking at what's going on right now, whether it's this issue of the divide over abortion, the divide over whether Americans should have health care as a right rather than a privilege. I feel this in every bone in my body, that there's an awakening happening in this country. The question is, will it happen soon enough to save us from these fascists? Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.